Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Julian Fromm. Just before we start, I'd like to offer a quick word of prayer. Please bow your heads. Your Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, this morning that your name will be glorified, that we will understand you better, that we will want to be like you. Lord, the things that you have uh, helped me to prepare this week, I'll remember and be able to present in honour of you. Amen. What do you think of the state of the world today? Where are we in, in, in history? Where are we? In the toes. Of course, you're referring to Daniel's, uh, or at least King Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the statue, aren't we? The toenails, right down in the tips. I do want to look at a few texts in Daniel. Is there anything, any other indications? Just where are we? Why are we there? How do, how do you tell? Things are definitely more and more natural disasters, more unrest in nations. That's definitely happening. Anything? Any other indications? People are becoming unreachable. Yep. God's spirit slowly being withdrawn. We had Pharaoh in our Sabbath school lesson this morning. He hardened his heart and bit by bit rejected God. Happening in our world today. Absolutely. Well, there's, there's lots of things that we could look at. Uh, lots of indications, lots of evidences. I wanted to uh, pick a, a scripture this morning and just have a look at a couple of specific things. You know, when I was converted, it was through many things, but largely Doug Batchelor. Amazing facts. Net 99. And it was when I gave my heart to the Lord. And I, uh, I love Doug Batchelor's presentations. I still do today. I still love watching him. Um, I don't think I've ever been physically present. Casey mentioned the marvels of modern technology and that's what we have to rely on. And... Um, after we've looked at this scripture, I want to share some amazing facts. Similar, I guess, to what Doug Batchelor does. I like listening to some of his amazing facts. But first of all, our scripture, Daniel 12, 1 to 4. This is no doubt probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible or passages in the Bible that tells us about how to identify where we are in history or at least the end time, assuming that we all believe we are at the end of history. Starting in verse 1. At that time shall Michael stand up. Who's Michael, somebody? Jesus. The great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall come a time of trouble, as David was talking about, such as never was since there was a nation even to the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book... And many of them that sleep in the dust, what does that mean? People who have died, shall awake the resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What's that? Judgment. And they that shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Someone tell what the firmament is, please. The sky. Yes. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever. But thou, O Daniel, 
shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the the end. And this is the key here. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Here are the indicators. So I just want to look at running to and fro and knowledge being increased just in three instances this morning and they tie together. How do we run to and fro today in our modern world? Somebody call it out. I'm hearing voices, but I'm not hearing any clear. Jet aircraft. Jet aircraft, yes, airplanes. Anything else? How do we run to and fro? Cars, trains, so planes, trains, automobiles. Anything else? Emails. Emails. <laughs> yes. How many emails? Half of them are spam, aren't they? If you've got good filter on your email, that's a real blessing. <laughs> Running to and fro. I think of a picture of a city, you know, and just masses of people walking this way and that way and traffic going flat out and subways underneath and airplanes flying overhead. Let's have a look at a couple of these, and you've said them. Probably the car and the plane are probably the two most prevalent these days. We could look at many examples, but let's just look at these two. Let's look at the, the car. The year was 1886, and a fella, a German inventor by the name of Carl Benz, you may recognise that name, put a patent on the Benz motor wagon. He was the one to basically be credited and put a patent on the motor car. Cars did not become widely available until the 20th century. Um, but let's... I don't have any pictures for you today. You'll have to... Uh, maybe you can Google it when you get home. But the, the Benz patent motor wagon had three wheels. I'll paint a, a mental picture for you. It had three wheels, and they were very uh, much like the wagon wheels with the spokes. They had metal spokes, not wooden spokes, believe it or not. There was no steering wheel... There was just a, uh, a post and you had to wind it around to steer. There was no front suspension. It had solid rubber tyres and it had an open seat with no windscreen, no lights. It was basically just a seat. You fall off, you're in the dirt. <laughs> that, was, that was it. It had the motor behind. It was a 954cc single-cylinder four-stroke engine that produced a half a kilowatt of power. And it had a maximum RPM of 250 RPM and a maximum speed of 16 kilometres an hour. That was the first motor car. Mr Benz. Of course, we know that the Mercedes and Benz, Mercedes was another man, and Benz are uh, still going today. Um, like I mentioned earlier, cars did not become widely available until the 20th century. And probably the first, most famous car that was accepted by the masses was the 1908 Model T Ford, mass-produced. It um, was produced in between 1908 and 1927. Within a few days of its release, there was 15,000 orders for this motor vehicle. And in between that period, in excess of 15 million were produced from uh, 1908 to 1927. It had a 2.9 litre engine and it had 15 kilowatts of power, so that's somewhat more than half. It had a glass windscreen, it had an enclosed cabin, it had suspension, it had a steering wheel, it had driving lights and a top speed of around 70 kilometres an hour. So that's a real step up, about 20 years it took to, to get there. 
You could buy many aftermarket ploughing conversions. How do you like to buy that for your car today? Ploughing conversion? It re- they would replace the rear wheels with steel tractor-type wheels and install hitches to suit ploughs. Compare that car or those cars, you know, the, the early uh, Benz motor wagon or the Model T to the car you drive today. What sort of speeds do you do? What sort of comfort do you have? 132 years of development has gone into the motor car since the first patented motor car. 132 years. Interesting. What about the plane? Anyone know when the Wright brothers had their first successful flight? 1903. Well done. Do you know how far they flew? Now I'm testing you. <laughs> the first, they had, there was four successful flights on that day, and they were they were uh, the first three flights were very short, um, only matters of feet. The fourth flight, however, went for about 260 metres, and it took 59 seconds. They didn't even fly for one minute, and that was regarded as. Um, the, most, the first successful aeroplane flight. It was a biplane, so it had a wing top and bottom. Um, these guys were, the Wright brothers, were, um, bi- had a bicycle shop. They manufactured bicycles. So they used their technology, because bikes are light, and they put it into airplanes. They had chain drives from bikes for the propellers. And they had homemade propellers and a homemade engine, because all the engines in those days were too heavy for the planes. The pilot lay flat on his stomach on the bottom wing and there was a cradle that his hips went in that he moved from side to side and that gave the trajectory, that gave the steering. Incredible. So if they wanted to manoeuvre the plane, they actually developed, they'd been watching birds and how birds varied their wings and so they actually warped the wings. They didn't have the flaps and rudders and things. So this first plane, they warped the wings to get their direction and their lift in flight. The Boeing 707 was in service for more than 50 years. It was the first widely successful commercial jet. From 1958 to about 2013. I don't have any specs on that because I want to move on to the Airbus A380 because that's the current um, biggest, best, longest flying aircraft, passenger aircraft we have today. The Airbus A380's upper deck extends all the way along the fuselage, which gives it two layers. Its floor area is 550 square metres. Have you looked in the, um, some new estates these days? You can buy blocks of land smaller than that. Think about the size of your house and think, wow, this plane has a bigger area than the size of most houses. 550 square metres. 550 square metres is a big house. Um, in its standard three-class configuration, it can seat 525 people. But if it was configured for an all-economy class, 853 people could be seated in that plane. That's enormous, isn't it? Anyone has it how far it's designed to fly? Around the world? About halfway around the world. About 15,700 kilometres it can fly. 
and um, it flies at about 900 kilometres an hour. And most of its current flight, depending on which flight you take, is the longest ones that we have around 14,000 kilometres that they do in their regular flight, and it takes about 16 to 17 hours to do that. Anyone who has a guess on how much weight is its maximum takeoff weight, that's all combined, you know? How much weight can it lift off and fly into the sky? Some, you've got to guess this. Somebody, somebody take a guess. 90 tonnes, keep going. Fail? No, come less. Keep going. That's getting a lot closer. 575 tonnes of plane, cargo, fuel, etc. When they take off, that's the maximum. That's enormous, isn't it? That's amazing. 575 tonnes flying through the air. 115 years of development from the Wright brothers to the A380. 115 years it took us to get from there to there. What about the increase of knowledge? Would you say knowledge is increasing? I don't think anyone would say that knowledge was going backwards. Sorry? Because of internet. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I, I Googled this and I've, I've done a bit of a sketch on the board here of a graph. There was a fellow called um, Buckminster Fuller. He's passed away now, but in 1982, he wrote a book and it was called The Knowledge Doubling Curve. So this, this is, um, there's a lot of graphs out there because people have taken this up, the, the, the knowledge doubling curve and I, I guess probably added to it and refined it a little bit. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, graphs that represent what this, the work that this man did. He was an, an inventor and an architect. This is probably the easiest, I guess, uh, I found to help us sort of understand where he was coming from. If we look back here in 1785, we see the first wave of technology. Around... Um, 1845, we see another wave of technology, another wave, another wave, another wave. This first wave here is iron, water power, textiles and commerce. The second wave of technology or knowledge was steam, rail, steel and cotton. The third wave was electrical, chemicals and engine. So this all happened, um, probably what prompted a lot of that was the Second World War. Um, the fourth wage, uh, wave, sorry, uh, petrochemical, electronics, aviation and space. And our, our current wave, the digital technology, biotechnology, software IT, like Robin said. So this is what this man noticed, that until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. So we've just got a slow increase every century, just a doubling. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. So that's at a rate of four times quicker. Today it's not quite as simple as that because there's different areas of technology, but here's a couple of comments that are interesting. Nanotechnology is doubling every two years. Clinical knowledge every 18 months. But on the average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. So we've gone from 100 years to doubling every 13 months. According to IBM, 
the build-out of the internet will lead to a doubling of knowledge every 12 hours. So when we draw a graph of how knowledge is increasing, because this is what we're really interested in, is that we see that for a long time it was just gently increasing and then as we get here, look what's happening. Notice the date, 1785. This is when the inventions and things just started to take off. So isn't it interesting to look at the way knowledge has been incre increasing? Now, just out of interest, when did Ellen White come along? When's the time of the end? Let's go back a step. According to the prophecies of Daniel, when's the time of the end? 1798. 1785 is what this person has put on this graph when knowledge started to work up. When was Ellen White? 1800s, mid-late 1800s. 1827 to 1915. There was an explosion around this area here. Can anyone think um, of what else was happening around this time? There was Joseph Smith, Fox Sisters, birth of modern spiritualism. There's a whole rash of things. Darwin and his evolutionary theory all around here. We have the end time prophet right on time, don't we? And of course Satan throwing in a heap of counterfeits to try and counteract that. Interesting. Let me put this aside again. So with all of that knowledge, now those facts, are you a little more convinced we're in the end time? It's interesting because we looked at cars, and that was in the fourth and the third wave, aero in the fourth wave, and we could talk about a lot of things of how knowledge is increasing, but that's not really primarily why we're here today, is it? Interesting look at these facts to put us know, uh, to know where we are, but then... What do we do about it when we know where we are? What do we do about it? We are at the end of the world. And I know you've already said that you believe that. If we're at the end of the world, what preparation is necessary? What should we be doing, especially as Christians? Well, I suggest that we need to take God's lead. We need to find out what God's number one priority for us is, what is most valued and what is greatest thing to him. To do that, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I want to stop there and I want to put this maybe a little more closer to home here and say though I give a pleasing address or a stirring sermon though I sing with a beautiful voice and have not charity I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and maybe I could say though I follow and understand current events in regard to scripture though I speak the truth and though I understand I can quote the Bible at will and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and maybe I could say, though I pray and God answers my prayers, though I have performed miracles with God's power, though God has performed miracles for me, I have not charity, I am nothing. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and maybe I could say, though I give generously to a charitable organisation, and though I work in a soup kitchen, I help the battling single mum next door, and have not charity, it profits me nothing. And though I give my body to be burned, and maybe I could say, though I serve in the mission field all my life, Though I spend my whole life in wearing labour for God and have not charity, it profits me nothing. But what is the principal thing? We are not left in any doubt, are we, what the principal thing is, and that is charity. First and foremost is charity, and what's more, without, everything, without it, everything else is rendered waste, useless, without profit. So what is God's charity? We don't have to look very far to find out, do we? Let's keep reading in verse 4. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. It seeks not her own. It is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. It rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never faileth. And now abide faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. I like the King James because it uses the word charity, not love. Love has been so perverted these days it can mean almost anything. Have you noticed something about the description of what constitutes charity or God's love, if we were to use it in the correct context. It's a high and holy principle. It's a high and holy principle. That's a great answer. Have you noticed? It could be defined in another way. Aren't these good character traits? You know, Moses asked to see God's glory. Let's read about it. Exodus 33 and verse 18. Exodus 33 and verse 18, and it reads, And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And then we have to skip over to 34.6 to find out exactly what happened next. Chapter 34, verse 6 says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Now pray tell, what is the glory of the Lord that was proclaimed to Moses? Was it the new Jerusalem? Was it the grand universe he had created? Was it heaven, the home of God? What about the multitude of other existences, the beings, the angels? What about his awe-inspiring being, as described in Revelation, with eyes a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze? What about the power and the light emanating from the Father, so bright that he has to have two covering cherubs to veil him? No. This is not God's glory. The glory of God is his mercy, his grace, his patience, his goodness, his truthfulness, his forgiveness, his justice. 
His glory is who he is. His character. God's highest priority was to reveal to Moses his character. God's highest priority is to reveal his character to us. Now it wouldn't be fitting if we have an end time prophet specially given for these last days to not include some of her advice, would it? And I have a number of quotes here which I'd like to read to you. The first one is um, from Councils to Teachers. Listen to this. This is something I feel like printing out and putting on my wall and uh, looking at it every day to remind me. The Saviour's entire life was characterised... We're talking about Jesus here. Jesus' entire life was characterised by disinterested benevolence. What is disinterested benevolence? Without self-seeing. What does it mean to be disinterested? And we're not talking about not being interested. That's not the context here. Not wanting profit. We talk about it in financial terms. Someone has an interest in a company. They've got money invested there, right? Is there anything that God can take from you and me? No, he doesn't need anything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the world, the universe, everything. There's nothing that we can give him that he doesn't already have. Jesus is disinterested. But there's benevolence. What is benevolence? Well-wishing. Yeah, that's a great synonym. It means, this is a dictionary definition of benevolence, the quality of being well-meaning, kindness. Here's some synonyms. Kindness, kind-heartedness, big-heartedness, goodness, goodwill, benignity, compassion, consideration, thoughtfulness, decency, public-spiritedness, social conscience, charity. Well, charity. So the Saviour's entire life was characterised by disinterested benevolence and the beauty of holiness. He is our pattern of goodness. From the beginning of his ministry, men began to comprehend more clearly the character of God. He carried out his teachings in his own life. He showed consistency without obstinacy, benevolence without weakness, tenderness and sympathy without sentimentalism. He was highly social, yet... He possessed a reserve that discouraged any familiarity. His temperance never led to bigotry or austerity. He was not conformed to the world, yet he was attentive to the wants of the least among men. It sort of makes you go a bit weak at the knees when you read things like that, because you realise, I do, I'm talking to myself here, that I I don't uh, come anywhere close to that. Friends, we have to ask ourselves some soul-searching questions when we come up against the character of God. What thoughts and feelings do we have? What is the language of our mind? What words are spoken there? When we contemplate our spouse, our children, our friends, our church family or those we associate with, what's our attitude? Who are we when we are alone with our family or our spouse or our children? Are they our loved ones or just our lived with ones? Who are you really? What's underneath everything? Where is your heart and what it is like? What is it like? How do we measure up to God's standard? Is our priority number one to measure up to God's standard? Or is godliness a priority 
at all. There was a young man who came to Jesus and the story is recorded in Luke chapter 18 and it goes like this. A certain ruler asked him, being Jesus, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. You knowest thou the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And I think most of you know the story. How it goes rest, uh, the rest of it, and it says... When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was, he was rich. He was very rich, the Bible says. God's character of love and mercy and justice was undesirable to this man. How do rich men generally get rich? James tells us, he says, ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? This man exchanges the rich, exchanged the riches for heaven for the riches of earth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I was saying all these things shall be added unto you. But what are the riches of heaven? The riches of heaven are good character traits. They are the riches of heaven. Forget gold, it won't give you love. Despise silver, it can't help, help your soul. Diamonds are definitely not forever. But character is the currency of heaven. Well, I guess we've identified what God's number one priority is and what he is like. But we probably need to know how to implement that in our lives. And so let's go to the last words in the Old Testament. Does someone have them memorized by chance? Book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. I'm sure we've heard these many times before. The Elijah message. How are we to set about developing good, godly Christian character? What is the message, the Elijah message for the last days that we live in? Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the what? The coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the Elijah, no two ways about that. When's the Elijah message come? Just before Jesus does. And the next verse reads, And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children... And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Family. Family, friends, is the first mission field. Family is where we develop good, godly character. Well, I've already mentioned the entire prophet a couple of times and I've promised to read you some quotes from her and I have some here. Where This is from Rue and Hell, May 22, 1888. Wherever the people of God are placed, in the crowded cities, in the villages or among the country byways, there is a home mission field for which a responsibility is laid upon them. 
by their Lord's commission. They are to take up the duty which lies nearest. First of all, first priority, God's first priority, take note. First of all is the work in the family. Next, they should seek to win their neighbours to Christ and to bring before them the great truths for this time. Are we to neglect our neighbours, to neglect evangelism? Absolutely not. But the first work is in the family. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee these days shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. It's meant to be a part of us, isn't it? Isn't that what it's saying? Every aspect of our life, take it there. Make it a reality. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon their hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Friends, what is on your forehead here? Well, there's going to be a seal there, hopefully, I pray for everyone. But what's behind the, your eyes? Your frontal lobe. Where do you make your decision? Where's your morality? Yeah, God is saying here, whatever you do with your hand, whatever you think in your mind, do these commandments. Think these commandments. Make them part of you. You shall write them upon the posts of your house and on your gates. Do all those things, it's going to be pretty hard to forget, isn't it? Review on Herald, May 3, 1898. God's law is immutable and eternal, for it is the transcript of his character. And by it, God designs to bring the family on earth into harmony with the family in heaven. God has made it possible for men to obey his requirements by making it possible for them to be partakers of the divine nature. Thus, our characters may be moulded in accordance with the law of God. And by willing obedience to his law, our characters are conformed to the character of God. Six Testimonies, 4.30. God designs that the families of earth shall be a symbol of the family in heaven. Christian homes established and conducted in accordance with God's plan are among his most effective agencies for the formation of Christian character and for the advancement of his work. Review on Herald again, February 2, 1886. Self-denial must be practised in the home. Every member of the family should be kind and courteous and should studiously seek by every word and act to bring in peace, contentment and happiness. All members of the family do not have the same disposition, the same stamp of character, but through self-discipline and love and forbearance, one for another, all can be bound together in the closest union. In many families, there is not that Christian politeness, that true courtesy, deference and respect for one another that would prepare its members to marry and make happy families of their own. In the place of patience, kindness, tender courtesy and Christian sympathy and love, there are sharp words, clashing ideas and criticising dictatorial spirit. In every family where Christ abides, a tender interest and love will be manifested for one another. Not a spasmodic love expressed only in fond caresses, but a love that is deep and abiding. True love is a high and holy principle and is altogether different in character from that love that is awakened by impulse and which suddenly dies when tested and tried. There's a lot of emphasis on family here, but don't get me wrong, I'm not saying have a big family. 
and make that your number one priority. I'm saying make godly character in your family. Whatever your family is, there's so many different types of families these days, but wherever you are, whatever you're doing, in your surroundings, whoever you're with, make godly character your number one priority. Do you want to influence your neighbours? I know in this church we have people who are really strong and fervent and zealous to go spreading the gospel. Read the advice here. Blessed is the family where father and mother have surrendered themselves to God to do his will. One well-ordered, well-disciplined family tells more in behalf of Christianity than all the sermons that can be preached. So I should probably stand down now and just work on my family, right? That's the advice. Well, the Lord says that we need to gather together and be edified, doesn't he? Sermons have their place. But they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is godly character and that our families represent Christ. By the way, it can be hard to be a representative of Christ, but for those of you who have tried it, is it a good thing? Is it a happy thing? For those of you who have walked with the Lord for a while after maybe walking the other way, are you happier now or are you happy back then when you, before you served the Lord? Well, I can testify that I've been trying this now for almost 20 years and my life has never been better. Such a family gives evidence that the parents have been successful in following God's directions and that their children will serve him in the church. Their influence grows, for as they impart, they receive to impart again. The father and mother find helpers in their children who give to others the instruction received in the home. The neighbourhood in which they live, this is the point, if you want to reach your neighbours, the neighbourhood in which they live is helped. For in it they have become enriched for time and for eternity. The whole family is engaged in service to the master. And by their godly example, others are inspired to be faithful and true to God in dealing with his flock, his beautiful flock. Review and Herald, June 6, 1899. Do you want to hasten the coming of Jesus? And I'm sure plenty of people here are working towards that end. Listen to the advice given. This is from Christ Object Lessons, page 67. As you receive the spirit of Christ, the spirit of unselfish love and labor for others, you will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase. Your convictions deepen. Your love be made perfect. More and more you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This fruit can never perish but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. And listen to this. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Did you get that? Jesus is waiting for a people that will perfectly represent him, that want to make character first, that want to be like Jesus. They see the glory of God and desire that for themselves. 
It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of gospel. Quickly the last harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Do you want to do evangelism? Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. The light of the Son of Righteousness is to shine forth in good works, in words of truth and deeds of holiness. Christ's Object Lessons 415. It's compelling, isn't it? I'm sorry I read so many to you, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that it takes time and I'd rather say it, but I can't memorize it. I don't like reading, but isn't it compelling? Isn't it compelling? So, am I preaching good works? Yes, absolutely. What's wrong with good works? Please tell me. It's Satan that puts good for evil and evil for good, not Christians. There is nothing wrong with good works. Am I preaching salvation by works? Yes, we are judged by our works. Those of us who know Christ will not gain entrance to heaven if good works are not manifest in our lives. The disobedient will not in heaven and we are commanded to love one another. But let me clarify a little bit more. Am I preaching that our good works provide merit to gain an entrance into the kingdom of heaven? No way in the world. Definitely not. Nothing you can do can buy heaven. It's a free gift from God. James puts it like this. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. The works are an evident that you trust in God and that he is working in your life. This is the correct position to take. I believe that God will help anybody that asks him to perfect their character. Notice what I said there. I believe that God will help anybody that asks who? Ask God to help perfect their character. God does the work in us when we ask and are willing. Salvation starts here and now, friends. God saves us from ourselves and from our evil works. And if the Spirit of God lives in you, the fruits will be present. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to this message this morning. questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. 
That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia. All one word. .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
me just how lovely your commandments are, and write them on the tablets of my heart. That was Melita Fong with Write Them on My Heart. Coming up next, we have Mary Lou Luthus with the song, Praise the Lord, He Never Changes. Time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Finding peace in your crazy busy world. We live in a topsy-turvy, fast-paced world. It's easy in the rush of crammed, hectic schedules to neglect life's most important priorities. There's more to life than increasing its speed. Our lives can easily become so busy but oh, so barren. God has a special four-part peace plan to guide you, strengthen you, and inspire you with hope and direction. Let's take a moment to explore these vital elements of stress protection, physical and mental health, and spiritual vitality. Daily applying these four principles will help you flourish instead of flounder as you face life's challenges and demands. Number one. God has given us a lifestyle that promotes peace. Lifestyle is a major factor that affects mental, physical, social, and spiritual health. Lifestyle choices matter, 
especially the ones we repeat every day. They have a profound effect on brain function, which is the seat of your thinking, emotions, and decisions. Many of the fundamental tools for the care and feeding of the brain are everyday matters. Physical and mental exercise, proper nutrition, and adequate sleep will help anyone gain cognitive clarity and emotional stability. Replace artificial stimulants like caffeine and sugary drinks and snacks with a breakfast rich in fresh fruit, whole grains, and nuts. Power up your lunch and supper with crunchy, colorful, fresh vegetable salads, greens, and beans. Try healthy vegetarian entrees instead of fatty meats and fried food. You won't crave snacks with this delicious high-fiber fare. Do you want real brain energy and body vigor? Water is the beverage of choice between meals instead of soda and coffee. Second, God has given us attitudes to practice, yes, practice, that produce peace. Your mind, brain, and body are in constant communication through many different systems. Actual informational substances called peptides are produced by our attitudes, emotions, and actions. Your thoughts and attitudes have a powerful effect on the rest of your body, especially your immune, nervous, and digestive systems. The Bible teaches us to discipline our minds to focus on God's power, promises, and plan when facing problems. We can literally think ourselves into a frenzy, but God promises His peace, perfect peace, to the one whose mind is centered on Him. Isaiah 26, 3. He invites us to trust Him with every circumstance of our life. A thankful attitude is associated with better physical and mental health and even a longer life. A contented mind, a cheerful spirit, is health to the body and strength to the soul. This is an attitudinal discipline that focuses on God's truth and solutions rather than fear, circumstances, and unreliable emotions. Third. God has given us spiritual principles that secure peace. Spiritual well-being is at the center of a healthy lifestyle. To meet our deepest longings, God has provided spiritual principles that bring true life satisfaction. This does not come with wealth, fame, popularity, or even perfect health. It comes through making peace with God in entering into a saving relationship with Him. Studies confirm that religious commitment may play a beneficial role in preventing mental and physical illness, improving how people cope with mental and physical illness, and facilitating recovery. Our natural hearts are not drawn toward God, but we need Him. We're drawn to God because of our need and God's healing love, which draws us. We love Him because He first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. God's love is the foundation of a relationship with Him and healthy relationships with each other. We connect with God through prayer and learning about Him in His life-giving Word, the Bible. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Psalm 86, 7. Fourth, God has given us faith that preserves peace. Faith is not mere positive thinking. It's connecting with the living God who seeks to restore all that sin has broken and taken away. It's connecting with the God of hope, heaven, and the healer of the heart and life. 
Jesus never promised an absence of problems. Jesus said, These things I have told you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. Faith is the conviction that God will guide you and give you power through both good times and bad times. Faith says, either make the problem smaller or me bigger. Faith connects you with a real God who is true to his promises. He has a real plan and he cares for you in a very personal way. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, purposes of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. God's peace plan can be yours. Hulda Crooks experienced God's peace plan in her lifestyle, attitude, trust in God, and faith. A sickly, sedentary, overweight young woman who later experienced the loss of her husband and son, she began walking to relieve her depression, and she began to experience the healing of her physical maladies and constant fatigue. Her plant-based diet improved her mental and physical health, and she was able to better comprehend and cooperate with the principles of God's Word and reach out in faith to grasp His power and His plan for her life. She conquered life's mountains. Hulda began practicing a positive, faith-based attitude that gave her the altitude that she needed to get inspired and be an inspiration to others, literally. From age 63 to well into her 90s, she completed 23 Mount Whitney climbs, backpacked 212 miles of the John Muir Trail, climbed 86 Southern California peaks, and held eight world records for seniors over the age of 80. This spunky late bloomer caught and taught inspiration as a motivational speaker and was affectionately known as Grandma Whitney. A mountain peak of Whitney is named Crook's Peak in her honor. God's peace plan was fulfilled in Hulda's life, even though she was a late bloomer, and it can be fulfilled in yours, too. Would you like to experience the fullness of God's power, promise, and plan for your life? His peace plan is for you. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.